Hello, and welcome to Democracy Works. I'm Dennis Pinelli. One of the best things about this podcast and my job at the McCourtney Institute for Democracy is that I get to interview some of the country's leading public intellectuals when they come to Penn State to speak. This week's guest, John Meacham, definitely fits that bill. He is a Pulitzer Prize winner and one of the best thinkers I've come across on how America's history can inform the present. John and I had a ranging conversation about his book, The Soul of America, his biography of John Lewis, his podcast work, how he approaches partisanship, and much more. Thank you to the Center for Character, Conscience, and Public Purpose at Penn State for bringing John to campus and arranging this interview. We'll be back with our normal format next week, but for now, I hope you enjoy this conversation with John Meacham. John Meacham, welcome to Democracy Works. Thanks for joining us. We're going to test whether the title is actually true. (laughs) Yeah, indeed. Indeed. So, you know, your visit to Penn State and in some ways this conversation is about two years in the making. You were scheduled to come originally in 2020. And, you know, we've been through a lot in those intervening two years, a pandemic and insurrection, more, you know, the sort of most pointed conversations about race we've had maybe since the civil rights era. I could go on, but these are, you know, a lot of not unlike the moments of struggle and division that you write about in your book, The Soul of America, where, you know, we've had to to choose as Americans hope or fear, better angels or worst impulses. So I'm wondering, I guess, as you look back on this, you know, these recent events in this recent history, how have we done at, you know, channeling some of those impulses? I think we're doing better. Certainly, we're having a more – this is a more congenial conversation than it would have been in March of April of 2020 for all the obvious reasons. At that point, we were just beginning the once-in-a-century pandemic. As you say, we were headed into a a ferocious period about racial justice. And we had a president of the United States who would, within the year, attempt to thwart the will of the people. And so – we're not there, so that's good. The point of democracy, it seems to me, is not to arrive but to struggle and try to make tomorrow just a little bit better than today. And it'd be great if it were a lot better, but I'm a uh, a hopeless and hapless Episcopalian. I believe we're all fall and frail and fallible. And a democracy is the fullest expression of all of us. And so the country is only as good as we are. And when people talk about character and conscience, and it, it's really about us. It's about the daily and seasonal decisions that we make that become perennial ones. And so I am much happier today that the incumbent president is the incumbent president. I think that we have the capacity to amend and reform, to return to our imperfect country as opposed to the country that we were living in, I think, from 2017 through the 6th of January 2021, in which nobody even wanted to try to be more perfect. So, you know, we're also watching the conflict in Ukraine. 
play out. And you, know, you and many others have characterized it as a, a conflict between democracy and an autocracy and the, you know, kind of Western order versus, you know, threats of, of authoritarianism and things like that. And I think that that's, you know, I don't think anybody listening to this show would, would disagree with that. I guess I'm wondering, one, what a win for democracy looks like and how do you frame it in a way that you know resonates when people here and, and perhaps other places don't necessarily agree on what democracy is or even if they think it's important or something sort of worth fighting for? Well, a couple of things. Uh, the struggle that President Biden is leading here is – entirely consistent with the one that President Truman undertook from really the fall of 1945 forward. If you look at the creation of NATO itself, for instance, it is entirely framed in the rhetoric that we're hearing now from the president. If you look at Harry Truman's inaugural address in 1949, if you look at uh, his remarks when the various treaties were signed at different steps. It is about democracy versus communism, liberty versus uh, slavery. And so the, the struggle is ancient. What is unique about this is this is the first time, as we sit here in the late winter of 2022, where two nuclear powers of this scope and scale have been this close to each other. Now, I accept the except EX, the uh, missile crisis, because that was at least a contained moment. Yeah, yeah. And I want to come back to that, actually. But, okay. but in Korea and Vietnam, elsewhere, we were all, each of us had a side, but it wasn't direct. This is different. And so the stakes are terrifying. You ask about how do you define democracy? I, I think it's a basic understanding that we were all born with an innate capacity and right to pursue our own uh, path in life under the rule of law, which are – and the rule of law is established not by the fiat of the strong but by some kind of collective action, however manifested, however expressed within the protocols of politics. And so a victory for democracy would be Vladimir Putin not controlling Ukraine. Pretty straightforward. And there are children and women and men who are dying and suffering at this hour because of the most elemental kind of conflict that is unfolding in an advanced century where we have the capacity to destroy ourselves many times over. Right. And on that point, I was listening back to your episode of Hope Through History about the Cuban Missile yeah. crisis and and Kennedy and and Khrushchev and you know one of the the points you made there was that you know Kennedy was really a student of history and figuring out how he was going to, to approach a situation. You know I'm wondering if the Biden White House is doing the same thing. If they're also looking to perhaps some of the same history, or if, if perhaps what Kennedy did in '62 is now part of that canon of how we how to move forward here. It's a great question. I've not talked to anybody specifically about the '62 analogy, but the basic vernacular in which we're speaking is fully and deeply, <clears throat> excuse me, appreciated at the White House. 
Remember, Biden has lived a big chunk of this, all right? I mean, he's almost 80 years old. He was born during World War II. And so, and he spent a lot of time looking at particularly how both the Cold War world and the post-Cold War world can operate. And so I think, not unlike George Herbert Walker Bush, I think that what we've seen in the diplomatic response is an appreciation of the value of diplomacy and understanding of complexity while remaining in a principled position. And one of the things, as you know, about history and politics is you never get credit for keeping bad things from happening. And so – and that's the price you pay, right? That's when you when you go into office, you got to accept that. So the other kind of historical comparison we've seen a lot recently is comparing Zelensky in Ukraine to Winston Churchill. I'm wondering, well, I guess, one, where that comes from. It's an easy, like, hot take to put out on Twitter, right? right? right. But, you know, where does that come from and do you agree? I think um, the Churchill of, of – May 1940 is a vital figure to understand, not only because of his defiance and his insistence that, as he put it, according to Hugh Dalton uh, in the um, in the War Cabinet, if this Long Island story of ours is to end at last, let it end when we are choking up upon our blood upon the ground. It's all great stuff, right? It's Gary Oldham in the movie. We shall find on the beaches. We shall find on the landing grounds. We shall fight with growing strength and growing confidence in the air. We shall never surrender. Da, da, da. But the last part of that speech, which nobody quotes, is even if this island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until in God's good time the new world and all its power and might will step forth to the rescue and liberation of the old. It ends with a diplomatic appeal – to Franklin Roosevelt and to the United States. And so the Churchill example is implacability but understanding that you have to have the people with you to be implacable and then you have to be practical. And certainly the first part of that, uh, President Zelensky has done an amazing job and my sense as events unfold is that he seems to be doing the other as well. The Churchill example also is a great one in human nature because Churchill got almost everything in life wrong except Adolf Hitler. And if you're going to get one thing right, opposing Adolf Hitler is the one to get right. And so he was 65 when he was became prime minister in May of 1940. We can never know too much about that period. And I don't know if Zelensky studied it. I don't know if it's intuitive to him. He certainly echoed the rhetoric of it. Uh, the speech to the Congress was quite brilliant in that it linked terror from the air coming in the, in the on the two great moments, two tragic moments. It happened in the United States. And so either Zelensky knows a lot of American and British history or he's got somebody near him who does. And it doesn't really matter because here's a guy who has put on a master performance in rallying your people in the face of aggression. Yes, many many books to be written, you know, about him and this this situation in you know, future generations. I'm sure. I also don't blame listeners if they want to hit pause and look up implacable. <laughs> <laughs> 
So I thought this was an academic. You know, it is. We have been brow. called jarringly academic. So yeah. may, maybe it's just me that would need to. We hit call this possibly. place the Vanderbilt of Central Pennsylvania. Oh well, yeah. You know, and on that actually, we've also heard. I know that this theme of unity is something that's been in your work a lot over the past two years. You started up a project at Vanderbilt on unity and, and American democracy. It's also, I think, it's some- all working. Don't worry. <laughs> And it's also something I think we've heard from President Biden as well, trying to promote this theme. And you've also talked about this idea of of unity, not unanimity. I wonder if you could could unpack that a little bit. Look, unity to me is not that we're all going to be at the Brookings Institution and agree on, you know, means testing Social Security or whatever the compromise of the moment is. It's basically a common assent, A-S-S-E-N-T, to the rule of law. My view is you can't love your country only when you win. And as long as we accept the protocols of politics, if we accept the rules of the road, if we accept – pick your you know, analogy, then we can argue. And this country is always – at its best, this country is at 60-40. That's massive unity, right? 40 percent of the country never voted for Franklin Roosevelt. In the three great uh, landslide elections from, 19, from the Second World War until now, uh, 40% still voted the other way, 1964, 1972, and 1984. So what we're really looking at, I think, is 60-40 is the goal or, or the historical measure. Right now, we're at 50.5 to 49.5. Right. So how can we at least get to maybe 5347? And at 5347, which is what, say, George H.W. Bush got in 88 or something, we would sit around thinking the country has come together. Both begin, and there's a lot of political science on this, the, the structural nature of polarization, all that we can talk about if you want. But I think this is an eminently doable because we're not talking about that many people. And all I mean, I mean, I, I don't care if you disagree totally with me on everything. In fact, most people do, I would imagine. But you got to say the election was fair, right? That's the, that's the threshold. If you're going to participate in what is a functionally an unfolding plot to undermine governance, then that's not unity. If, you, if we're all in it, and we fight, but we accept the rules, that's a whole different thing. Mm-hmm. That's what we're supposed to do. Getting to that 53, 47, or you know, somewhere closer to that 60, 40, how much of, of getting there is top down and how much of it is bottom up? Great question. That's the central question of, of politics and history, right? At what point is the leadership, the elected leadership and the people, at what point are they makers or mirrors? And whether the issue is slavery or uh, emancipation in the 1860s or the social safety net in the 1930s, whatever the question is, it's, it is a mix because it is true that no – as tempting as it is for people like me to, to act this way, it's very unusual for there to have been an American president standing on Olympus deciding something. That's just – it just doesn't work that way. 
that American president can stand on Olympus and do something brave. But I bet that's because 45% of the country was with him, not 51. And so I, I think it's both. I think that the country has, broadly put, the country has to decide. A significant portion of the country has to decide what they want and then entrust that mm-hmm. power and mission to somebody, which is what we're supposed to do. And I think it happened in 2020. And you know, I, I don't believe polls much anymore for all kinds of um, technical reasons. I don't believe that 60 percent of Republicans think the election was stolen. I think – 60% of people in that poll may have told someone that to kind of own the libs or whatever. But I think that what you saw in 2020 was a decision by enough people to say we do not want to repeat the experience of the last four years. And I'm a firm believer in the following point, which is that presidential elections are not referenda. They're choices. Very few people think – it's not as though we went to the country and said, do you want Donald Trump to be president? And they voted on that. That's not the way it went. It was do you want Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump? Do you want Joe Biden or Donald Trump? And that's what elections are. They're not ratifications. And so any question about presidential politics has to be answered in context. So the other thing, the other sort of factor that amplifies this, of course, is the state of our media uh, environment. And I, I wonder, I've been thinking a lot lately about what Al Franken has described as the dehumorizer. He talks about it in the context of trying to, you know, basically having anything he says put through this right wing filter, right? He he thinks about it, they're stripping the the humor out of it, but I think about, you know, any time President Biden or, or other politicians say something, it goes through the looking glass on, you know, right wing media. And so I guess I I wonder if that's something that you think about in the, the work you've done with President Biden about how it's going to be perceived in that world or if that just gets you so far down a rabbit hole you could drive yourself crazy, I would think, trying to, to game out all those scenarios. Well, let me answer in general. I don't want to be specific about anything about, the, about President Biden. In general, it is a perennial truth. As you know, the newspapers were partisan in the 18th and 19th centuries. They were – you know, and, and I, I'm pretty sure – I can't prove this with data, but I, I'm willing to bet the mortgage payment that there were not a lot of planters in South Carolina pouring over the liberator. And there weren't a lot of people who were reading The Liberator who were reading The Charleston Mercury. And if they were, they were just reading it to get mad in both cases. So the existence of a partisan media is – has the effect of, of, the, of the, fo- the following effect. It creates a machinery of perpetual conflict, which goes to your point and Franken's point. And it doesn't really matter what the quality of the fuel is. The machine has to work. So any comment, anything, because they have to publish or broadcast or tweet or whatever it is, nobody at any cable network gets up at 5 a.m. and scans the wires and says, oh, there's nothing to fight about today. We're just going to go dark, right? So you have an infrastructure that values conflict no matter what, and and the conflict may not need to happen. 
And you see this sometimes. This is hilariously stupid. You know, the Daily Show is brilliant at this. You know, uh, my favorite is Obama wore a tan suit once, right? And there wasn't anything else going on that day, so the tan suit was the thing. What worries me? So that's that's the highbrow answer, right? It's always been like this. Mm-hmm. Da, da, da. It is different in that the written culture, however sulfurous, operate on a different part of the brain than people looking at something coming in on their phone. I think one of the reasons the divisions persist at the same level is COVID. It forced people – and it, an event that should have produced a sense of common purpose forced people inside and onto their screens. And when they're on their screens, they just get mad and there are people who have an economic political motive to make them mad. And the, the only good news about this – is that it is a van? It is a smaller proportion of the people. We just happen to know all of them, and are part of it, right? But I think I'm right. Seventy-five percent of the country is not on Twitter, right? And if you take the cable news audience at its biggest, you're talking about ten percent of the country, maybe, right? So, a difference there, of course, is every congressman, every senator, every political operative is in that universe. So it has an outsize effect. But I think it's one of the reasons actually that – I date the modern sort of congressional politics era to 94. It's why I think the wise guys, you know, the people who are paid to follow this are often a little more surprised than they think, than they expect it to be simply because they can judge accurately what 25 or 30 percent of is going on. But if other people show up, they're probably showing up out of a different impulse. And sometimes it's harder to see that impulse in real time. Mm -hmm. Well, that gets me to – I've been thinking a lot about the podcast you did, Fate of Fact. Yeah. And that to me – so I have been on panels and even sat in this very studio and said things like, you know, podcasts are our way out of this political media yeah. problem in some way because they allow for more nuanced discussion and, you know, all those things. And I, the longer time has gone on, I'm starting to think that maybe that's not true. Maybe that was like a delusion of grandeur that people <laughs> had in it because it's also such a – like all of our other media today, it's, it's self-selecting. So how are people – are people going to seek out content that they know that they might deliberately – that they might not readily agree with? And it strikes me that your show, Fate of Fact, tried to maybe do some of that, tried to and, – and tell me if that's wrong, but you yeah. were maybe trying to reach people who might need to hear a message they might not otherwise. I, I think that for what it's worth, I think that if you just tell people they're wrong – it makes you feel good and your people feel good, but it doesn't do any good, right? And so one of the things – when I'm lucky enough to be asked to do commencement speeches, one of the things I say – and the grandparents and parents love it. The kids are hungover, of course, so they don't, they're not paying any attention. And I'm mainly talking about Twitter. I say that just because you have the means to express an opinion quickly does not mean you have an opinion worth expressing quickly. And what I try to do every day is judge before I say something – and try to figure out, is this going to add to the sum of human knowledge or not? And most of the time, it's not. And so I'm sometimes I'm good about not doing it, and sometimes I, I know it, but I do it anyway. Um, I think it is hard for people to, as you say, explicitly seek out something that they think might change their mind. It is 
to be totally personal for a second, it is the reason I do what I do. I believe that history has the capacity to appeal both to the broadly put liberal love of experience and data and the conservative appreciation of tradition. And that may not be dispositive, but at least it opens the aperture just enough that you might get something done. And when you begin to – and that was, that was part of the, the fate of fact thing. Part of my – part of the argument there was I disagree with those who say that – the Trumpification of the Republican Party was the inevitable result of Nixon, Reagan, Bush, etc. I don't think that's true. I think it's the opposite. I think that Nixon, Reagan, Eisenhower, Nixon, Reagan, Bush actually didn't deliver for those folks. And so they said, all right, if you're not going to deliver, we're going to send a professional wrestler. And so I think that's interesting. I don't know what quite I don't know if it's actionable in, in, in some way. But to your podcast point, I think it, I hadn't thought of it, but that's very interesting that you do have the ability to curate and create conversations and content that are a little bit like preaching a sermon. You never know who's going to listen. I do wonder how you think about audience when you're you're writing a book versus making a podcast, and and has it changed, uh, you know, over time? Mm, that's a good question. Has it changed? I I don't think my uh, I don't think my goal. I know my goals haven't changed. Have the means changed? I don't know. I try to I try to create. This is an old David McCullough point. I. I try to create the kind of stuff that I like and that I would like to read or hear. And I'm not a partisan. I'm not a political operative. You know, Clearly, I would like to speak to the moment because I think there is a moral utility to history by which I mean that if you understand the past, you if, – if you – have an understanding of the past, it can be elevating in that you realize that they were not perfect people walking around doing great things. And I find that very liberating. This is the most familiar of points, right? You know, flawed people doing good things. So I, my sense is that I get that it's a polar, you know, obviously it's a polarized climate. I don't know – I don't want to ever purposely talk down to people and I believe that, for instance, when I am lucky enough to be asked to speak on things, I can go an hour and not mention the 45th president's name. And I find – I don't know if you find this in your work – I find that there's a, a greater power – two things. There's a greater power in admitting that you're listening to a sermon from a sinner and not a saint. And secondly, trust the audience, whether it's a classroom or, or civilians. Uh, 
to get the argument by implication. So if I describe Joe McCarthy, I don't need to push really hard about why that matters, about what that means. And George Wallace, you know, and I think that that I think the audience then feels is more open to the argument because they feel they've made the connection. Right. And the elephant in the room is only the elephant in the room if you make it that. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, we talked earlier about, uh, you know, people in, in democracies obviously have, have choices, but there's also – and the soul of America talking about a list of, of actions or more kind of concrete things yeah. people can and should do. I wonder if you could talk about some of those things. Well, democracies don't work without citizenship. And one of the things we have learned in the last five years is that citizenship is not a passive but an active state. My argument <clears throat> is that citizenship is best practiced if you're in the arena, as painful and awful and unpleasant as that can often be, if you understand that facts can't be changed, uh, one's reaction to them can be, but facts can. You have to have you, – you actually have to engage with people who disagree with you, Eleanor Roosevelt once advised people to go to the other party's meeting every once in a while. She's the only person I can think of who would ever actually do that. But and – and obviously I would think this, that having a sense of history arms you for both mental health as you engage in all this and might give you a sense of what's possible. So it's – you know, I have a broader sense of what leadership means than – you know, sort of FDR in the wheelchair lighting a cigarette. It's it's all of us making sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously decisions about how we want the world around us to look. And I believe fervently that when – People of given eras in the United States have decided to advance the meaning and application of what Jefferson wrote in the Declaration as opposed to keeping it in one place or pulling it back, that those are the eras that we ought to commemorate and celebrate. And they are the eras that most people, if they are not in a, in a more warped place would admit that's when they want to be. That's where they want to live. You know, it's pretty straightforward. You know, do you want to be Joe McCarthy or do you want to be Margaret Chase Smith? You know, do you want to be Jefferson Davis or do you want to be Abraham Lincoln? You know, it's just, it's just, it's there. And maybe it's overly simple, but I don't really think so. Yeah, I think this and to wind us all the way back to the the notion of, you know, democracy is the the struggle to make tomorrow better than today. I thought about uh, your work on, on John Lewis as yeah. you were, were talking about that. I feel like this is this is something he really you know embodied in his work. I wonder if you could talk more about that and and where that notion came from for him. Well, John Lewis was on that bridge in Selma and was on the buses for the Freedom Rides and. Uh, got arrested, well, I think, 41 times in his career because, A, of the gospel, the New Testament gospel, to love your neighbor as yourself, and, B, an innate revulsion against segregation, 
against the idea that human beings should be treated differently based on how they looked, which was a, a violation in his view, a failure to carry through on you know uh, the fundamental promise of, of creation, which was both theological and more secular in the Declaration. And Congressman Lewis is a marvelous example of this. He, he's a saint and we're not. Uh, in my in my view, though, the the reason to talk about saints is not to make them unapproachable and their work seem like something as if it were something we could not do, but just put them on a pedestal so more people can see them. And so, let's say my other thought about this is Theodore Parker's great line from the middle of the nineteenth century is that, which is this is how Dr. King paraphrases. The arc of a moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. But it's not going to bend unless there are people insisting that it swerve. And John Lewis insisted that it swerve. And not all of us can be John Lewis. But we can say that's what – X is what I want the country to look like. I want more people to feel they have a shot. So take a step back. How do you do that? I'm describing you know, what's so funny about this era, of course, is that this is all like describing the wallpaper, right? This is what we're supposed to do. And because of the designs of a particularly autocratic element within American politics, we are forced back to these first principles and first things to talk about and defend. But that's what we're called to do. Last question. There is, I think, a thread of hope that runs through your yeah. work. Are, are, you, are you a hopeful person by nature? No. <laughs> I'm not. Uh, I, I say that to be cute. Sure. How, if you're me, sort of how could you not be, right? I'm a boringly heterosexual white southern male Episcopalian. You know, things work out for me in this country. I was born in this remarkable place. I've been given these remarkable opportunities. And so it seems to me intuitively that one is called uh, – that sounds overly grand – that one should make sure that the promise that created the world that I have benefited from – that that promise is extended to all. And I am hopeful partly because – so leaving that, that's a personal answer. I'm also hopeful because 55 years ago, we lived under functional apartheid in this country. A hundred years ago, you couldn't vote. You know, 56 years ago, we were still living under an immigration system that had been passed in 1924 which is the excuse the federal government used not to allow in more refugees from Nazi Germany. There would be people alive today if our immigration laws had been changed. So, you know, I, I know we're in the middle of this great debate about 1619 or 1776 or 1865. I'm a big believer. If I were a better person, I'd write this book, but I'm not. That really we were founded in 1965. This country is 57 years old as we know it. 
1968 was the first integrated electorate. 1968. They used to seem like a long time ago. You're young. I'm, I'm getting old. This, is, this seems very uh, day before yesterday to me. And I knew a man and was honored to write a book about him who in that year nearly died because he wanted the provisions of the 15th Amendment, which had been enforced for 90 years, to actually be applied. I knew him. So what are we talking about that somehow this was all easy until 2016? I, I don't think we do ourselves any favors by romanticizing a pre-Trumpian world. Well, John, you've given us lots to think about. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Democracy Works is a collaboration between the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Our editors are Mickey Klein, Chris Kugler, and Mark Stitzer. Editorial review by Emily Reddy. And additional production support from Andy Grant and Chris Allen. If you enjoyed what you heard today, leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. It will help new people find the show. Find more great podcasts about democracy and civic engagement in the Democracy Group Podcast Network at democracygroup.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.